I'm Erica. And I'm David. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Erica, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I'm Erica. I am an ecologist. I have an interest in games. I am married to David, the co-host. Um, David kind of influenced some of the content in the Frog Fractions org, and I consider him part of the Frog Fractions extended universe. Oh. I guess I would plug oh. marrying someone from the Frog Fractions extended universe. It's worked out. <laughs> the only other person I can think of in in actually in universe would be Ben McGraw. Oh yeah. And he's taken. Yeah, so. yeah. He's well, I mean, he's getting married. So cheers to Rachel Sella. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Making the right decisions. Um, I'm David. Um, I'm a biologist. Um, I'm married to Erica. And I do remember um, looking through insect photos um, but that I had taken over the years during the development of the Frog Fractions 2 ARG and picking out ones that I think are now still on the internet. Yeah, they're still the on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> I also remember proposing going to the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum to take a video of the southwestern leopard frogs in the enclosure, which later got turned into a video. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like the, the closing video. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to plug vaccine. I live in Texas, and I think vaccines are really fantastic, and more people should get more of them. <laughs> yeah, especially, and if any listeners live in Texas, especially, go get vaccinated so you don't infect David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> it's a very kind PSA. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything to plug, Jim? Oh, do I, I? Oh, man. This is not the first time someone has asked me that, but it always throws me for a loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug my son, Winston, who's just the, the most amazing boy. I love him so much, and he gets cooler every day. Okay, this is different from, like, last time I asked you to plug something, and you were plugging, like, child prisons or something to keep your <laughs> two-year-old confined while you were downstairs. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he's still a problem. He's still also a huge problem that I deal with all the time. You know how you, like, you only ever see people, like, post photos on Facebook or Instagram of when their kid is amazing? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think that's them trying to convince everybody else their kid is amazing. I think it's also them trying to convince themselves. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that's definitely true. Yeah, yeah. Especially, like, when you when you look back on your, your history of your own posts, you're like, oh, yeah, lots lots of good memories and not a lot of, like, me complaining about all the shit that I went through in the middle of the night. Yeah. I also see people uh, posting pictures of their kids, like, slathered with food and, like, in quite a messy situation. And those are the moments where you say, um, like, I don't feel the same way about that child as they do. <laughs> <laughs> This is, I think, universally true. Like, people don't like other people's children slathered in things. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I can see. I'm not a, I don't know, I don't really see the slather. I just see blonde, brunette, redhead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of think what you're saying, Jim, extends actually to people's relationships with just about everything that they post on social media, or at least on certain mm -hmm. social media platforms. Yeah, I could see that. There's a huge amount of life curation that goes on, yeah. Yeah. But by contrast, like somewhere like some something like Twitter and on Facebook as well. Like I, I mentioned Instagram specifically because it's less so like this, but Twitter and Facebook are both like very much. These are all the things I was upset about today. Yeah, that's, I think especially of Twitter in that regard, 
I, I might, I think I have a set of friends on Facebook who tend to post like positive glowing things about how exciting they think their life is. Mm-hmm. I say this lovingly to all my Facebook friends. Some of them will probably come across this podcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> Twitter is less likely to like earn you a concerned phone call from your mom than Facebook is. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to change your number. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Are we ready to start on some topics? Sure. Erica, your topic is two plant families for the apocalypse. Okay, so this is a game that um, we started playing with the graduate students at University of Arizona. And the idea is like the apocalypse has happened. Which two plant families do you want to take with you or do you want to survive? <laughs> and it's like a really good question. I can give you kind of the answers that we've come up with, but I wanted to give you a, a shot um, while we have some some biologists sitting on the other side of the computer from you, um, like what plants you would want to take into that kind of situation. Okay, so you want the plants that help you breathe? Oh, oh, no. oh yeah, yeah. We haven't considered that. I don't know what any of the families of marine phytoplankton are, but that's what's <laughs> yeah. responsible for most of the oxygen <laughs> in the atmosphere, right? <laughs> Yeah, okay. So uh, that's probably multiple families. I'm glad I'm shedding new light on this. Jim, you've uncovered the fatal flaw in this whole premise. <laughs> Maybe you don't want the, the ones that help you breathe. I mean, this is post-apocalypse after all. Like, I've seen these zombie movies and stuff. You don't want to survive for very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Assuming, okay, then I want a hemlock and... Uh... <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Okay, but you get freebies. So the thing is, if you pick hemlock, you also get things like carrot. And celery. Delicious. Fennel. Fennel. Licorice. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. Caraway. You get everything in the family. Yeah, you can get that thing that gives you a rash if you get it on you and then you stand in the sun. Oh. I'm not aware of this one. Um, Cow parsnip. Oh. Or like the giant cow parsnip. Right, right. Okay, yeah. 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 Oh, so it's like if you get this, if you get cow parsnip on you, you have to run for shelter. Yes. So you don't get this. <laughs> but you could, you could also decide not to touch it. You have a little bit of agency in the apocalypse. <laughs> okay. All right. You get another plant family. So you're picking APACE. And then do you want that? You still want the marine phytoplankton? Well, th- those are kind of in opposition. Right. I know. It would be, it would be one or the other. Like, let's, let's assume I want to live. Okay. okay. Let's, let's, let's posit that. Let's say the, the phytoplankton and then also, like, I think the next most important one is to eat. Like, mm-hmm. what's a what's a good food food plant family? So one of your options is like grasses because you can have things like wheat. Is rice and grasses? Yeah. Rice is in grasses. Poaceae. Corn. Corn. Bamboo shoots, which is a vegetable, but it's yeah. also grass. Another solid pick for food is beans. Like you get all yeah. the beans. Poaceae contains um rooibos tea as well so you can get beans and rooibos tea <laughs> and peas yeah yeah but you gotta you gotta soak the beans for like 10 hours before you cook them rice you just throw in the rice cooker yeah i think it's the grasses for me grasses okay yeah that's a that's a solid pick these are excellent choices so you have apac and you have poaceae so you can make you have carrots and you have celery and you have fennel and you have rice, rice and corn and, and wheat, wheat and barley so you can make beer yeah. Uh, so you have a lot of excellent, a lot of excellent options. I'm just sitting pretty. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for for being my guides to the apocalypse. <laughs> you made excellent choices. <laughs> Gosh, now I'm kind of reconsidering because 
it always comes up like is there an economy after the apocalypse like did other people get to choose other plant families well if there are enough people and you ask them all probably they're going to have them all covered yeah but i don't know like it could be just you and your plants you know right everybody gets to pick two but those are the only ones you have access to after the apocalypse okay yeah the um so there, there's a lot of interesting levels of this. Like some people really care about vegetables, so they get the melon and the cucumbers and yeah. the pumpkins and so forth because they really like all of those vegetables. And they're pretty diverse. Which are actually yeah, some um, of them are savory <laughs> and some of them are sweet. Yeah, rosaceae, rosaceae, rosaceae gives you, which is the rose family, apples and pears. And yeah, basic like fruits, like I think strawberries. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, like stone fruit, I think. I think that's right, like peaches and pears. Yeah. And with apples, you can make cider. So yeah. So you have alcohol in that scenario. That's a good one. I, um, I've um i come down to um, on the side of like important foods to me. I've decided to pick, um, I think it's rutaceae, which basically just gives you coffee. Oh, oh rubiaceae. <laughs> oh, rubiaceae. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rubiaceae gives you coffee and... Um, nothing else that people Yeah, eat. nothing else. But nothing I think it's Western that science. important to me. I forget what family it is that onions are in. I think it, it's been moved around a little bit. Yeah. It's the aliums, but um, are they in asparagaceae? It would be in liliaceae. Liliaceae, family, yeah, that's I right. I don't know if they still are, but... I think they're they're probably in liliaceae, okay. but that gives you, like, onions and garlic, and that's, like, so important to me that I would be willing to forego all other kinds of vegetables just to have, like, some onions to put in my meat. Because I'm surviving off of coffee and meat at this point. <laughs> Which, uh, what, what plant gives you ibuprofen? <laughs> oh. You won't need it. You're going to be on keto, man. <laughs> uh, just, okay. I mean, just give me opium. Opium. That's just a good one. Opium and coffee. Poppies? Yeah, so poppies. Opium and poppy seeds, Poppy basically. seeds, yeah. You can have that strange poppy seed milk soup that I described in an earlier episode. That's right. And what, what would you take, David? I, I decided this at some point. I feel like it's hard for me to avoid poaceae, which are the grasses, to have grains. Grains are a good one. And you get bamboo shoots, so you get one vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> you get sugar, actually, so you get sugar cane as well if you do that. And there are actually there are people, like not in Western cultures, but in other parts of the world, people do eat reed shoots and things like that, which are also poaceae, so different kinds of aquatic grasses but yeah what would the other family be like it's tempting to pick rubiaceae but then all i basically get from that is coffee so i can be awake for the remainder of all time after the apocalypse (laughs) (laughs) but but there are people who when they play this game like they cannot resist you know like they'll take rubiaceae as one of the two families another good one to pick is solanaceae which is the nightshade family because you would get eggplants and tomatoes yeah it's not enough for me you either gotta go fruits and grains or you gotta go like coffee and like something that you feel like is a good set of flavors yeah rutaceae is good because it gives you citrus oh yeah that's a good one yeah that's a good one i want to circle back to something you said earlier about how you get one vegetable and you're a biologist so like you have uh you have some authority here about what's a vegetable and what's not oh yeah i've always considered like any anything made from plants to be vegetables including like toast and (laughs) french fries it's interesting like i guess as a biologist a fruit is like a it's a mature ovary of a flower right so there are all these vegetables that are technically fruits but we use them as vegetables right yeah other things that are like fruits but we don't really think of them as either fruits or vegetables like avocados but then some grains are actually technically fruits as are nuts 
like tree nuts, like walnuts and almonds and so forth are, are technically fruit. So ask yourself, like, does your toast have mature ovaries? And if not, you know, then it's a vegetable. <laughs> no seeds in my toast, <laughs> unless you count the ones that they put on the outside of the crust, <laughs> the poppy seeds. But the flour, it's made of wheat flour, which are the fruits of wheat, basically, that are ground up. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah, so this is an excellent point. Like, where does so it toast, toast is a fruit. So calling it all vegetables might just be the best approach. <laughs> <laughs> I am very sympathetic to this argument. I used to think about this as a kid a lot. <laughs> yeah, I used to make the argument. In fact, like, April and I once had a pretty nasty fight about this about classification of fruits. Oh. This was like very early on in the relationship before we learned each other's tells. So <laughs> this is one of the worst parts of like the introductory biology textbook. But yeah, I can't I can't shed any light on this view right now, like without having like the textbook in front of me. Right, right. So next I need to ask a chef. No, no, no. No, definitely not. That's not the way to go. I mean if you get into this fight again, just you know text us or something we'll resolve it for you i just need to uh, get, get canvas the field with all the possible viewpoints but yeah like my go-to in the argument is no longer croutons or vegetables it's croutons or fruit definitely yes croutons or fruits sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> although like i have to say i'm very tempted by your suggestion that anything of plant origin should be called a vegetable yeah these distinctions are being somewhat arbitrarily applied in conversational usage, and we should just call everything a vegetable. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to this argument. There's a simplicity to it that I, I find very appealing. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Sure. sure. Uh, David, your topic is alternation of generations. Sure. So this follows from our earlier plant topic. So alternation of generations is a technical term in biology. And what it refers to is that for certain organisms, like certain plants, and well, all plants actually, and uh, certain algae. If you th they think of the plant as the organism, the, when the plant produces offspring, those offspring actually don't look like the parent at all. They're a different different organism. They're genetically the same, but they they look physically totally different. And it's that second generation that looks different from the first generation. It produces offspring that look then like the original first parent generation. And it has to be this way. So they have to shift the the generations that follow each other look different from each other. They switch back and forth. So there's no way for the first generation to produce offspring look exactly like it. I thought that the second generation was like haploid. That's also part of it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the reason why this happened, or the one of the things that is always correlated with this, is that the the number of chromosomes that the two generations have is different. So one of them has two of every chromosome, the other only has one of every chromosome. So it has they have different amounts of DNA in their cells. And why is this a good idea? This is a great question. Okay. So, okay. Can would, we can we back up a sec? Yeah. Would you so, like me to give a concrete example? So this this is something that happens in some animals too. It does. Like wasps. Like these um these galling oh, yeah. wasps. Right, right. Um so like the generation that yeah. like puts galls on leaves right. are I think diploid. And then the next generation, the haploid wasps, burrow into the ground and make galls on roots. Right. And then That's they right. yeah. those come out. Yeah. Oh, so this is like how if Jesus had a kid, that kid would have been a full-blown god. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Well, so um, so like a concrete. Here's a concrete example, right? So you gave a concrete example. <laughs> let's, 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 give a, let's give a concrete example that won't offend anybody's sensibilities. <laughs> a concrete example that's actually happened. <laughs> right. Yeah, so think of a fern plant, right? So you imagine like a fern, right? So 
um, you have an idea of what a fern looks like. So the fern, if you've ever flipped over the fern's leaves, they're not true leaves, they're called fronds, but if you flip the frond over and look on the underside, you might see that there are these kind of brownish things that are on the underside, like look like little brown dots. So those are, those are the organs that produce spores. So the fern produces these spores that are these little tiny kind of brown dots that float through the air and they land somewhere. And when the spore lands on the ground, it germinate, it sprouts. It doesn't turn into a fern like the parent. It turns into like a tiny plant that has a heart-shaped leaf that's only, you know, maybe a few millimeters to a centimeter across. It doesn't look anything like a fern. It's green, right? It's a plant. It's clearly a plant. It just doesn't look like a fern. That little heart-shaped plant, it's got a technical name. It's called a gametophyte because it makes gametes. So it makes eggs and sperm. And it grows somewhere wet, so there's kind of always like dampness and like a film of water over things. And the sperm that it produces can swim over the surfaces of things through this like moisture and find the egg that's produced by the same gametophyte or a different one that's next to it. And that sperm and the egg come together and they fertilize and they make an embryo. And that embryo grows out of the top of the, the little heart-shaped gametophyte plant. And that embryo turns into a regular fern. And so you have this huh. stage where like, the fern makes a new generation that does not look like itself. That generation is the one that gets to sexually reproduce, and then it produces a fern again. Yeah, this is very confusing to like botanists through time because they would find like sets of plants that would grow together and stuff like that, um, and they didn't realize that they were looking at the same species. It's still it's still tough. Um, you can basically only resolve these things um, by careful observation or by looking at the genetics of the of the plants um, to see whether they're or you know or insects to see whether they're the same species it's it's super weird um we don't notice the small there's usually like two stages and one is more obvious than the other so we don't tend to notice the one that's less obvious like these little heart-shaped plants are growing in these damp areas where we're not looking people don't sort of notice them they're very small the ferns are big and showy so we notice the ferns so mosses do this, a lot of algae in the ocean, many seaweeds do this as well, where they've got like a smaller stage and a bigger stage. And we think of the bigger stage as the proper organism, but there's this smaller stage also. Are there any like fictional universes where like the protagonists have to go through like haploid, diploid <laughs> stages? That's a great question. It seems like something that would be in Nausicaa, but I don't remember it being in like yeah, the Nausicaa Yeah, it manga. wasn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's close enough conceptually to like cocoon to turn into a butterfly yeah. and that which which looms so large in our culture like in terms of what yeah. people think about the wonder of nature that i feel like that would be the go-to fictional metaphor yeah yeah it, it and so this goes back to your question jim like why would this evolve in the first place and this is not super clear but one of the hypotheses is that so for instance like we think about butterflies the butterfly is a caterpillar stage where it gets to munch on leaves so it eats plants plant leaves and then it has an adult stage where it flies around and it goes to flowers and it drinks nectar from the flowers the butterfly gets to actually use two different resources over the course of its life cycle and, and it could have just evolved two mouths but this was easier somehow <laughs> right yeah exactly right yeah th this happened to be what evolved right it happened to be easier somehow and so it's possible that this alternation of generation for plants and seaweeds is something that is the same way they can kind of grow in slightly different places and use slightly different resources and maybe it helps that populations that do that survive and that's why those are the ones that have survived until the present that's interesting but i think like the the more complicated organisms um like they may have just 
internalized that process like your haploid form is within you <laughs> yeah so so this is what's happened in plants so in in like conifers like pine trees and in flowering plants which are most of the plants we see around us today that haploid stage the gametophyte that used to be a, like a little tiny independently growing plant has gotten shrunk down and it's it's just a little part of the inside of the flower or it's in the male case the male gametophyte is the is pollen grains so you have this like very shrunken stage of the life cycle that doesn't live on its own anymore and it's the mm -hmm. it's it's as if like just the fern is the one that exists you know in the case of the flowering plants this second stage that exists has gotten really reduced over time evolutionarily and that might be it might be because that's more efficient for those organisms to not have these two stages and keep sort of alternating between them yeah that's neat. I had a botany professor in graduate school who explained this in a kind of horrifying way, which I repeated <laughs> to a class of undergraduates a week ago and got a lot of shocked reactions. But I think it's very suitable <laughs> for a podcast. So here goes. Um, right, let's hear it. So he said that, like, this is weird. This is conceptually really hard to understand. Like, it's hard to teach it to students if they've never heard this before. Like, it's really weird sounding. You're like, what's going on? And he said, if you think about it in human terms, like, virtually all animals don't do this. They don't have alternation of generations. But it would be as if, as humans, instead of producing eggs and sperm directly, we gave rise somehow to little creatures that were, you know, macroscopic and we could see them. And they came out of us somehow and they got to mate with each other. And when they mated with each other, that would produce a human embryo that would grow into another human. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know what's horrifying about that. That's just like... Obviously, what you were just describing. Right, yeah, yeah. But when you put it that way, I was like, oh, okay, this clarifies for me exactly. Like, this is like, now I understand alternation of generations at like a visceral level. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, as, as you do too, yes. <laughs> so, but some of my students had very horrified expressions on their faces. And I wonder if it would be easier to like pitch, you know, like saving the planet for future generations or harder if that were like our mode of reproduction. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah oh yeah well we we would have no drive to reproduce but presumably like the way i'm imagining it is that it's like sporing it's like a, a boil grows on your arm and then yeah, yeah. like bur like bur bursts and then a little dude runs out it sounds like the evil dead movies <laughs> Reproduction by Evil Dead. <laughs> I'm a, oh gosh, I'm imagining a very specific creature from the cover of a horror movie that I never rented, but I always saw it in Blockbuster. <laughs> Let me <laughs> see if I can find the cover. Oh yeah, Ghoulies 2. It's the little dude coming out of the toilet. Ghoulies 2. Alright, we're looking this up. I have to say, like, this was not what I thought about when I was thinking about, like, algal life cycles this morning. Um, huh. <laughs> Ghoulies 2 produced Phil Fondacaro, which is not what I was picturing. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, oh, the, that's exactly what I was picturing as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I was picturing, but it, Man, it looks pretty haploid to me. That guy is getting so much action. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and you you can see both genders in the uh <laughs> Oh Ghoulies three. Ghoulies go to college. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Ghoulies go to college. I think this is the, I think this is the, like I think this is the Dutch poster for Ghoulies three. I think this is like Dutch on the poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. Good it's international success. Yeah. <laughs> 
I was really excited about Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College, until <laughs> I read that they're just killing people again. Like, I really was hoping they were trying to settle down and, like, you know, become educated. Embrace families. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nope. <laughs> put, the, put their, like, youthful, rebellious days and their, you know, fascination with the counterculture behind them. And <laughs> regular. Hard sporing citizens. <laughs> Jim, are you ready for another topic? (laughs) I was about to ask. Yes, I'm ready. Uh, So my topic is, I got a Fitbit for Christmas. It keeps track of how many hours of the day I've taken 250 steps to to encourage me to get up from my desk frequently. I've been getting up and walking three minutes at the end of each hour and continuing to walk for the three minutes at the start of the next, uh, which I don't think is the intended outcome of the people who designed this game, but that's the game they designed. (laughs) So I'm playing it. Wow. So how many steps is that total? Oh, I have it configured to, to like go for 12 hours. Okay. So if I do it every hour, that's 3000 steps. But then like, I also take a, a long walk in the middle of the day. So I get more than that. But if I just did the 12 hours, not that I've ever actually hit all 12 hours. Oh, speaking of, it is now 6.50, and my Fitbit just vibrated at me to let me know I need to take 224 more steps in the next 10 minutes. Oh, dear. It might be disappointed. I think it might be. I could just wave my arm around. Does that work? Waving your arm around. Sadly, it does. You're going to get a very buff arm. (laughs) The assumption going into this, I guess, is that you'll get all of your step that set amount of steps in every day if they're somewhat evenly distributed throughout the day i guess right that's well i think the the idea is specifically that like it's not enough so for a long time the metric you heard about was you want to get ten thousand steps a day yeah i'm pretty sure that metric was invented by people who were trying to sell pedometers i think it was also um maybe invented in japan where ten thousand is like uh it's an auspicious number Right, right. I've been in physical therapy now for like two years, almost continuously, and everybody's like six thousand. You want to aim for six thousand steps? <laughs> you know, 10, oh, interesting. Yeah, ten thousand is just like you know, it's too many steps. The thing I think about is like if you're trying to, you know, for example, get a um, an aerobic workout, walking isn't going to do it. You want to get your heart rate up. Right. I actually don't have a good sense of the general, what it does to you to be active throughout, like to be lightly active throughout the day. Mm-hmm. I just have, have a sense that like sitting at a desk all day is bad for you somehow. Yeah, it is. Probably because I saw some headlines and didn't read the articles. Yeah, it is It is bad for you. Like being immobile is bad for you. But but specifically like not just that, not just being immobile, but like being immobile for 23 hours a day and then like going on a hike for one hour a day is not good enough. Right. Your circulatory system needs help. And like the help that it gets is your muscles contracting to push your blood through your body and oxygenate it so that your heart isn't doing all of that work all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. So if your muscles are working, you're, you know, kind of like throughout the day, then you're helping your heart out. But this was the thing that I was kind of mistaking for years and years and years. And I don't think that this is well explained. Like, what you get out of walking is not the same as what you get out of aerobic activity. So aerobic activity will exercise your heart and your cardiovascular system. 
and it puts a stress on your body that your body recovers from and it sort of builds back stronger, right? So you want to do that like maybe three times a week, maybe five times a week if you're in shape. You want that to be um, of adequate intensity. But walking, it's like a fat burning exercise, kind of like a conditioning exercise. So you're like raising your stamina. But once you exceed a certain level of activity where you're putting a stress on your body, you're no longer burning in, into your fat reserves. You're actually demanding your body's like glycogen and sugar reserves instead. So if you want to burn off fat, you actually have to do very light exercise for like hours and hours and hours. So if you're trying to like condition your body and get, get more trim and sort of just increase your overall health, you want to be walking for like an hour or two every day. And doing that all in like a very brief period gives you something entirely different. It gives you like heart health. So I've actually had to go down from intense activity to like very low activity because that's, that's what I was missing from my mix was the, the walking. Yeah, I don't know. I pointed out over and over to people that like humans have giant butts because uh, we're meant to like walk, <laughs> walk yeah. and run. And like, you know, that's what this bipedal, bipedal motion is about. So like pushing yourself to walk and to, to run and stuff like that really conditions your whole body, your core strength, your major muscle groups, your, your quads, your butt, you know, your, your legs, um, even your upper body has to like work when you're walking. Okay. So like the other part of this, this movement is that basically like when you're not moving, your brain is not even aware of what your body is doing. And when you're moving, your brain is getting information about what your body is doing. Like once you start not moving, your brain actually kind of disintegrates a little bit. So you lose all kinds of like brain function that you can just maintain by telling your body where, or sorry, telling your brain where your body is at all times and walking or light motion or um, cross training where you're moving your right arm and your left leg at the same time and vice versa. Um, all of that kind of stuff gives your brain information to, um, to kind of grow and develop and get more of a sense of, of linking intention to activity. Um, and without that, your brain starts decaying and even like your emotional center becomes like not appropriately modified. So you, you lose the ability to like judge what it is that you're saying. And I, I think that like, I, we were talking about this the other day, like, um, the process of aging is probably just the process of like saying things without context, right? Like, <laughs> I was like walking around trying to remember. So what I was doing was I was walking around saying like, take off your pants, take a shit on the floor, right? <laughs> and, and like, <laughs> like, this is probably going to be a problem in old age homes in a couple of decades where like people are going to be walking around saying this. And young people will have no idea that this is like get swifty from Rick and Morty. Right. right. But I couldn't even remember where it was from. I was just encouraging David to take off his pants and take a shit on the floor. So Which we, I did not do. We did not do, right? Which is a testament to his brain function. But it's quite possible that like without appropriate like controls on your brain function and without providing context to people, 
you just have all of these memories that come out and then you have no ability to sort of stop yourself from uh, saying things that uh, basically are crazy at that point without context. So <laughs> what you're suggesting is that dementia is just when old people make references to TV shows that no one's seen in 50 years. That's what I'm saying. And the lack be. of exercise. Including yeah. them. So they don't even remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh... <laughs> right. That's, so that's what I'm this saying. This conversation is very frustrating to me because I live on a hill. Uh-huh. I, I can't just go walking. I, it's gonna, I'm going to be climbing a hill. Yeah, yeah. No, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. And your Fitbit is going to beep at you in the most satisfying way to your oxytocin and serotonin levels. Your dopamine is going to be coursing <laughs> through your head. when you're The Fitbit... racism hormone. <laughs> what? <laughs> is that true? <laughs> oh, this is this is something I read. I have no idea if it's true or not. The idea that um, uh, oxytocin is oxytocin floods your brain whenever you make a judgment about people who look different than you, oh. or like you dismiss ideas that are different from your own. Wow. Huh. That would explain why it's so contagious and so satisfying. <laughs> not to me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not an oxytocin fiend. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> I think you were saying something actually edifying, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, I, I was just saying like your your Fitbit is gonna like purr at you in a way that like you know makes dopamine course through your brain. <laughs> right. Yes. I look forward to being in the old age home where we listen to like that song from Rick and Me. I don't know that they're playing Get Swifty in the old age. <laughs> In the future, the people (laughs) taking care of you will be able to Google those phrases and find the their origins, and that'll that'll be the cure for dementia. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Who knew it was going to be so simple? (laughs) This is a bold hypothesis you're proposing. Anyway, what I'm saying is, you got to take that walk throughout the day, and it can't just be like uh, you know Jane Fonda's aerobics workout. It has to be just walking. (laughs) Right. Walking, walking for racism. It's got to be 6,000 steps and not 3,000. Right. This isn't the Olympics. <laughs> Ugh, I've definitely added up my steps like across GDC week. And I was like, oh, yeah, I just did two marathons. Wow. Wow. Cool. That's incredible. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think I, the two marathons, like um, looking backwards through time, probably like maybe I've achieved two marathons in the past two and a half years okay. <laughs> we, we live in a small apartment now. <laughs> it's not much hiking you, you need to get out and walk I yeah know. yeah maybe not out maybe not out with all the unvaccinated people but yeah yeah we can we can uh go and, yeah there are a lot of places outside to walk you need around. to get a treadmill and install it as deep underground as you can get <laughs> It's time to get Swifty down there. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Sure, sure. Uh, so for this topic, we're going to be reading the poem Ode to Spot by Data. That's fantastic. I'm going to nominate David because... <laughs> because Data was my primary adult role model for a phase of my childhood. Yeah. In fact, somebody asked me, somebody who hadn't met David yet, asked me what he was like because I, I was saying like we'll probably eventually get married and i'm like you know he's like data from star trek 
<laughs> so, so go to it, David. Ode to Spot. Do you want this in data voice? Or just no. <laughs> no. This is going to be recorded for eternity. Don't do that to yourself. Okay. I, I want to I wanna know what data voice sounds like. So maybe just one line. I, I might not be able to do it quite correctly on the first try. So like... Well, it's okay. We edit this show. So t- do as many takes as you need. I can just read it in my own voice, but I'll try to capture Data's uh, a little bit. Okay, yeah, so, okay. Yeah, sounds good. Ode to Spot by Data. Felis catus is your taxonomic nomenclature, an endothermic quadruped carnivorous by nature. Your visual, olfactory, and auditory senses contribute to your hunting skills and natural defenses. I find myself intrigued by your subvocal oscillations. <laughs> a singular development of cat communications that obviates your basic hedonistic predilection for a rhythmic stroking of your fur to demonstrate affection. A tail is quite essential for your acrobatic talents. You would not be so agile if you lacked its counterbalance, and when not being utilized to aid in locomotion, it often serves to illustrate the state of your emotion. O spot, the complex levels of behavior you display connote a fairly well-developed cognitive array, and though you are not sentient spot and do not comprehend, I nonetheless consider you a true and valued friend. This is, this is very good. This is a very good poem. It, it really is excellent. Yeah. This also um, reinforces my idea that uh, our understanding of what the word sentient means comes from Star Trek. In the original, when they have data reading this, Riker is falling asleep and Deanna Troy is like waking him up. But but really, I think I, I think this is a good poem. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's very good. This is like Riker is missing like the best 45 seconds of TV of the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember when this aired, I remember watching this and being like really impressed by it because as a small child, I thought that data was really awesome. And I thought that like a scientific poem about your, about a cat was really fantastic. But it like holds up as an adult. Like I have a PhD in biology now, and I'm like impressed by this poem. And like I'm actually quite curious. Like who is the genius who actually wrote yeah, this? Yeah, who wrote this? Like yeah. this is not. I on wonder. Mem- they're not saying this on Memory Alpha. Who this? Who this person was who wrote this? I wonder. Like if they had one writer for Data, or they had like a team of writers for Data, or anybody could write for him. Like that's the kind of stuff that I would yeah. want to know about. And yeah. you just I really like the idea that so according to this the teleplay was by Brandon Braga. Okay. Okay. And the story is by John Luis Mathias and Ron Wilkerson, but it's totally plausible to me that like they just have a guy who writes all of Data's dialogue no matter who writes the rest of the screenplay. Yeah. 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 Perhaps the person who writes Worf's dialogue no matter who writes it. <laughs> <laughs> right, cuz so when we were talking about like doing the poem, David was like, oh, is it going to be a weird poem? I'm like, aren't they all weird, right? <laughs> and he's like, well, there's a there's a category of like um, 20th century poms that are like hard to interpret. Um, like this one. <laughs> well, no, but this one, <laughs> but this one is yeah. like really like it's a poem to his friend, the cat, yeah. you know, and it's like a bunch of um, big words. Yeah. Uh, describing the nature of the cat. It's so good, but it's so right there. Like it's, yeah. it's not, it's almost like not meant to be interpreted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very, very literal. 
Yeah. But I also like, I, I think there's something to be, I think there's something to unpack here where like it's, it's to the cat, but the cat doesn't understand it. Right. <laughs> and even if it did, it's describing the cat, the cat knows what it is already. Right. Yeah. It doesn't need to be described to itself. Oh, right, right. It is addressing the cat. Phelous catus is your taxonomic nomenclature. Yeah. We are also used to data as a character in like the universe of TNG that um, I sort of missed this, but uh, maybe the first time I ever saw this, this occurred to me that it's also this like excellent parody of the idea that you could teach a machine to write poetry. Oh, yeah, right. right? Like if you right. gave mm-hmm. it the right programming and you gave it the you know a dictionary to work from, it could write things that like technically are poetry but don't necessarily resemble poetry in the way that human artists would think of poetry. <laughs> but it technically is. Um, there's a Stanislav Lem story that has the same sort of outcome um, in a book called The Siberiad, which is a, which is a book about a bunch of... Um, it's a medieval universe in space inhabited by sentient robots. So it's like a robot civilization, and they have robot castles and robot princesses, and the robots go hunting for dragons and stuff. It's this kind of medieval robot universe. And um, the two robot protagonists get into an argument about um, whether or not you could make an electric poetry machine. Can you make like a robot that writes poetry? These are robots that build other robots and that's presented as totally normal. And it ends up like escalating into like a, a bet where one of them bets the other one that they cannot get the robotic poet to write a love poem about tensor algebra. <laughs> Um, oh come on i could do that in 10 minutes yeah but you're human lo and behold oh right yes lo and lo and behold the the robot does successfully in less than 10 minutes produce (laughs) a love poem about tensor algebra but there's this like additional meta layer to this because this is of course a translated story and so the translator who's a native speaker of english is translating a love poem about tensor algebra in Polish, which has like meter and rhyme, like this <laughs> poem, yeah, which is exactly like a poem written by a robot that has access to a dictionary, right? um, into a poem in English that also has meter and rhyme that works as a parody of this idea, but is also a love poem about tensor algebra. Yeah. Well, what I meant was that I could write a generator, a poem oh. generator. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And the distinction that I'm making here is that like, it's, it doesn't have to be a good poem. Right, yeah. <laughs> like the 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 bar for what constitutes a love poem to tensor algebra is extremely low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And that, I mean that's true of the poems that appear. Like it's impressive in that somebody came up with a love poem about tensor algebra that's has meter and rhyme that's consistent and not not too cringe inducing, but um <laughs> Yeah. But it's actually not a good poem, right? <laughs> right, right, right. It's only good in the sense that it's really funny as parody. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> But yeah, maybe this future is closer than we think, right? Like you could write the code that would produce that and like you could make you could make Lem's uh, nightmarish parody vision a reality. I want to see Data's character sheet. There's a there's an episode where Data starts to have dreams. In one of his dreams, he's looking around. His builder is in the dream and he says, "What do you see?" And uh, he says, "My cat is present." So like Data has some kind of imagination and that imagination extends to like writing a poem about the cat to the cat and dreaming about the cat he clearly has like a a subconscious or something where the cat kind of like looms large but i'm sure that there are like unreleased character sheets that tell the writers like 
not just backstory, but kind of um, inner thoughts that are never supposed to be explicitly written about. It's funny because so much of the the like the next generation in particular was so fascinating and wonderful, and so many of the episodes were just total garbage, like total <laughs> garbage. Um, so it's like it's difficult to to pull some of these um, interesting themes out. But this is the second second time where I've seen like data. Um, express imagination over his cat. Uh, before we move on, um, I want to bring this idea up. Talking about uh, AI-generated poetry or, or prose even. Yeah. I, I, I saw an article recently about how um, – so like the GPT uh, framework for, for, for text generation that Google Google has been producing, for example – uh, that that and like things like it are they're made by training the algorithm on like massive amounts of text scraped from the internet. Mm-hmm. This is an article I saw about how researchers were worrying that we're starting to see now more and more of the text on the internet is generated by AIs. I oh, I yeah. I wonder if that's what I'm seeing because like almost everything that I Google now doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, I actually think that like that's another well this is a separate problem but it's they're certainly related that like I think Google results have really gone been going downhill fast mm-hmm. in the past few yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the like maybe it's just that like SEO people who do SEO have gotten better at it but you have to really work to get use, useful results. I I haven't been able to find useful results for things because like it's as if the websites like eat each other now. Well, right, and a lot of the most interesting content is happening, like in walled gardens, like Facebook. Mm-hmm. But uh, to finish my thought, I, I suspect I already made it clear. But like, just to, to make it explicit, like the researchers were worrying that because a greater and greater percentage of the uh, of the internet is generated text, that that mechanism of training a a, mm-hmm. a machine on how language works will stop working as well. Oh, I think it's already stopped working. It's just a question yeah. of whether it like stops generating profit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it ever was profitable, yeah. like using GPT, like you're you're paying money to get time on that algorithm. Mm-hmm. Like it, it could, Google, Google's servers are like it's apparently it's apparently very costly to run. Wow. I feel sometimes like we're living inside of the library of Alexandria as it's burning down. <laughs> <laughs> I know people have like pictures of the internet as it existed in previous forms, but it would be sort of impossible to to recreate what it was like without the subsequent stuff that was coming down the road, like the mind frame that it generated in people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the optimism optimism is not coming back, but like <laughs> yeah. you see um projects like this just came up in the Discord. And now I have to go through all the channels to find the thing I'm talking about. <laughs> it was a uh, Gemini, which I, th- I believe I, the link didn't work for me, and I think it's because it's this other kind of server. Gemini is a new internet protocol, which is different from HTTP from the oh, yeah. HTTP and the Gopher. Mm-hmm. It's a, basically a um, a simpler version of early HTTP, where you can create a Gemini site, uh, host information on it. Like and and the, all the examples I've seen are like people's home pages or like it's the kind of thing you would find in the early internet. Wow! And it, these are just people who are like trying to get the magic back. Right. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. And I think if they can get a critical mass of people, then they really can form an interesting community. But 
I'm not sure how big that critical mass is. It certainly is like doesn't have to be everybody in the world right. because right. like maybe one percent of people had internet access in like 1998. Mm-hmm. I think probably less than that. But yeah, this sort of thing is like I, I see this sort of thing a lot, and I always wonder like, is that fun? <laughs> I don't know. Like, it certainly looks like a an interesting hobby, but I kind of have enough hobbies already. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that this is like a for you thing. Um, right. Like, I have a feeling that this will be like maybe the next generation of like web developers gets really into this, or it becomes like um, something that some like nerdy high schoolers who exist today like pick up as a as a thing and get really good at. That's possible, but my my sense of it is that this is just for the olds. <laughs> This is for, this is for like people who remember what life was like and want to go back it there. Won't persist, right? You have to you have to have like a, a new group of people coming through, like proselytizing to the to the world with all of their like boundless yeah. energy. Well, it would be interesting. I mean, like we could like look into where this is happening because there must be some place on the internet where people talk about this. Um, see how big it yeah. is and then circle back to it in, you know, like a couple of months and see what we've learned. <laughs> you could invite one of them onto yeah, Topic yeah. Lords. Yeah, yeah, invite one of them onto Topic Lords to, to tell us what it's like. <laughs> is it for the youngs or for the olds? We need to know. <laughs> First of all, how old are you? <laughs> right. Ageless, and how old ageless. is everybody you know who does this? Is, uh, are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. David, your topic is Stone Coin. Sure. Okay, so this this topic is by a request from suggestion from Erica. We were talking about this earlier today. Um, so about maybe like a week ago, we um, were looking at a picture on the internet. No, no, or, I, I'll no. set it up for okay, you. I'll set it up and I'll, I'll explain. It um, I was worried about all of these crypto things. You know, there are like advertisements on television for crypto wallets and everything like that. Really. I have well. First of all, how when did you how did you have the opportunity to watch TV? Because I, I couldn't have like if you had asked me, I wouldn't have been sure it still existed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we bought um, a month of Peacock so that we can watch Olympics. Okay, um, all right. This is how this happened. Yeah, we don't own yeah. a TV. Like for God's sake, no, we don't own a TV. <laughs> yeah. The ads are totally laden with crypto ads. So yeah. if you're watching the Olympics streaming off of NBC right now. You are getting. Like like twenty five percent of the ads are crypto yeah, ads, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, something awful. And um, David said, "Well, what about Stonecoin?" And I said, "What's Stonecoin?" And he's like, "Well, in Micronesia, the island of Yap, um, people have like giant individual stone coins." So on the island of Yap, which is part of the Federated States of Micronesia, which is an island country in the Western Pacific, like kind of the Philippine hand. They traditionally have a couple different currents before European colonization. One of them is are these giant stone disks. They're not all giant. They're these stone disks that are uh, from a few centimeters across to, in some cases, about three and a half meters in diameter. The famous ones are these big ones. And so people traditionally, this is one of the currencies, one of the mediums of exchange on the island. And these large stone disks have a hole in the middle, so they can be sort of transported. So you can string the the, the three meter coin, all, all, string them all around your neck. <laughs> you stick a log through it, a bunch of people carry it. But yeah, there's a photo of this. Okay, sure. People, people carrying one with a log through it for the like the independence ceremony of the Federated States of Micronesia. So the 
the stones, they don't actually get moved around. They can be moved around, but they don't get moved around. So people have them in front, like you would have them in front of your house or somewhere on your land. Um, everybody knows that that stone belongs to you because the stones have a, each stone has a history. So there's an oral history of each stone, which describes when it was obtained and who obtained it first and who's owned it in sequence. And because these histories are known, the owner is also known. So if they change the owners of the stones change, like if somebody pays somebody else um, for some kind of transaction in one of these stones, the stone itself remains in place where it is on the ground. It's like an oral history blockchain ledger. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and everybody knows that it actually now belongs to the new owner because the previous owner, the pre- so-and-so gave it to so-and-so, right? That's, that's known to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. There's no need to move them around. I love that. I was going to make this joke when you first brought up these enormous, ungainly coins that no one would ever want to make transactions with. They just need to invent like electronic banking. And so the stones are just wherever they lay. Yeah. But everybody knows this one belongs to so-and-so. But apparently they are just already did it. <laughs> yeah, right. They don't need my help. Okay, so I read the Wikipedia article about this this afternoon because I realized this is going to be a topic. And I guess sometimes... This is what happens with things like gold reserves in central banks. Like they remain in the vault, but the legal ownership of that particular pile of gold bricks changes. But it would be too risky to take them out of the vault and move them. So they they remain in one place as if they were giant stone coins. And I guess it's kind of like real estate also. Like you actually can't move real estate from one place to another. Um, But, you know, people, it's a form of value um, people have. We Googled it last week and we were getting like all of these amazing pictures of the stone coins and everything. And um, Googling it today only brings up some kind of like cryptocurrency where they say that they're going to sell you these stone coins if you have as a cryptocurrency. Oh, so this is just, just today. This has just started happening in the, in the past week or whatever. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so I, I had read. Um... When I was a kid and I first learned about these, I had read somewhere that, um, so Federated States of Micronesia has had a couple different colonial rulers through time, but it's most recent foreign rule of the United States, right? So I had read that, you know, because of this, they use the U.S. dollar, and I had read that there was a bank, I forget what bank it was, but there was a bank there that had a standing flat exchange rate, like a non-fluctuating exchange rate for stone coins to U.S. dollars, and it was something like every inch of diameter is worth like 25 U.S. dollars or something, right? So you um <laughs> And I was like, that's really cool. Like, I have to look that up for the podcast. So I typed into Google, like, Yap Stone Coin Exchange Rate or something, something like that. And I got I got this, like, page after page after page of crypto websites claiming that they would sell me Yap Stone Coin at <laughs> a rate of, like, 0.001275 to, like, whatever amount of Bitcoin. <laughs> like, right. It's like, oh, dear God. <laughs> it's funny because I was going to say before before they're going to sell them to you as crypto, I was going to say that the stone coins, like, really have a lot of benefits over crypto. Like, first of all, rarity. There are only 6,000 of them, yeah. right? And, there. and new ones are not generated. Yeah. Because, they had to, because the stone doesn't come from Yap. It comes from other island groups. And so people had to go to other island groups and quarry the stone and then transport it successfully on rafts back to Yap. So losing yeah. losing your wallet does not affect your stone coin. Um, yep. Hard hard to lose track of. It has another advantage. It's not dumb. It's not dumb. <laughs> 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 not generating climate change gases. I mean, it seems ideal to me. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, the stability of a currency that is not currently being speculated on sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely not being speculated on. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sad that I can't find this information about the exchange rate in U.S. dollars, which makes me wonder, actually, if it's actually false, or it was like a temporary (laughs) thing, you know, decades ago. Yeah, that... Um, Or Google's just broken, and I'll never know. (laughs) Imagine if Google provided a service where you could, like, dial back their database to, like, a week week ago and get the results you found then. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going all the way back to like 1992 or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What's the year that you would choose for that? I guess I would choose 2012. You know, I was thinking around the same thing. Like 2012 was a pretty good year for me. Yeah. 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 They're going to serve that internet bottled. This was a good year. This website is from 2012. <laughs> this reminds me of something i read i read um so i went through like the phase that certain um overeducated people went through where we through like with sort of severe nostalgia we read like all of the obama administration memoirs that were available up to a certain (laughs) point in time so one of the earliest ones that came out in like mid 20 or early 2018 probably was by the guy of the obama speechwriter crew there were a bunch of speechwriters it was the guy who was in charge of comic writing Right, so it's the guy who wrote jokes for Obama when he was meant to be funny, right, and things like that. Oh, um, I forget his name, but the the title of the book. What is... about the guy who wrote Data's dialogue for Obama? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Like they didn't explain where that guy came from. That's a mystery. So you can read this book, and it will not reveal that for you. Yeah, like we we'll discover that the data writer from TNG was actually also Obama's like senior speechwriter. <laughs> That's why Obama was so charming. Yeah, um, but the, um, he didn't like cats. Or he didn't have cats, but. Um, the book is called Thanks Obama, which is like a reference to the meme that he, you know, eventually incorporated into various like things. But um, he talks about um, this point in 2014. So they were in the second Obama's second term where people he knew who did not work for the White House or for the federal government started commenting about how the world was falling apart and everything was like suddenly really awful. I can't even remember what was actually awful about 2014 myself, like reading this. But uh, anyway, he, he makes the point that... Um, to the people who've been working in the White House, the world seemed to be approximately equally awful. Like it was about as awful as it had been for the past six years. Um, things were about <laughs> equally in the state of crisis in 2014 as they had been for the entire Obama presidency. The world had as many like terrible things going on as had been happening in everyone's like institutional memory. But he he came to the conclusion that there was something about like the development of the internet that had shifted, and suddenly around 2014, people started being exposed to all of this much more unpleasant stuff when they used the internet or they were using it more and they were being exposed Mm. to this unpleasant stuff more Mm -hmm. but there was something some kind of threshold was passed with people's use of the internet or the content of the internet around then and um it wasn't like a real transition in the world from their point of view it was just something that had to do with the internet um and i found that really thought-provoking to think about um thanks obama thanks obama yeah (laughs) yeah i I thought i think it's entirely plausible that the world isn't actually any worse a place than it was 10 years ago, but uh, we are just so immersed in all the worst things that happen everywhere in the world all the time that you're bombarded with it every day. Let's go that... to our next topic because this like seamlessly transitions into it. It's a good segue. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So my, my topic is uh, things that have not gone wrong yet. So I basically put together a compre like, you know, there are so many things that have gone wrong in the past few years, and, and especially like for me personally, um, it's been really quite difficult. So I wanted to make like a positive 
affirming list of things that have not gone wrong yet um, so that I can look at it from time to time and really feel good about the state of the world. Um, so this is, this is my comprehensive list. So when making blueberry crumble, I did not accidentally grab a bag of frozen blueberries and a bag of frozen peas to mix together. Even though that would probably be delicious. You think so? I, you I would know, try it. It didn't happen. It almost happened, but um, but I ha <laughs> decided to put it under things that have not gone wrong yet. I don't I think mean, it sweet would be that Sweet easy. and savory go well together. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to derail your no, list. No, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, it gives me something to think about. Like maybe maybe that didn't go right yet. Maybe that should be on the <laughs> didn't go right yet list. If it happens, we don't have to worry. <laughs> So yeah. Point two is um, I have not embarrassed myself in German this year. Nice. In fact, the number of languages in which I have not embarrassed myself in the last year exceeds 6,000. That's a lot. I know, right? I'm impressed. Thank you. Yeah. I'm very proud of that, that fact in particular. Uh, point three, uh, I have not started my own podcast. Good, good job. <laughs> Thanks. Um, to invalidate one of my uh, things that have not gone wrong yet po uh, points, no one outside of my family until this point has heard me refer to my cat as booby, which would be very embarrassing, especially to yeah. reveal on a podcast. Yeah. Uh, Esper, do you want to do something about that? <laughs> <laughs> the next point, having not tried to trade in my used CDs for some time, I am not offended at the small amount of money they are offering me for the trade-in. And then my final point is also invalid. My printer has not yet run out of ink. Uh, two days ago, it finally did. So those, that's my uh, list. <laughs> I feel like you could just like take any, I don't know about inks, but I feel like you could take just about anything dark and put it in the ink cartridge and it would work. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what that would be. I'd have to burn something, I guess, and then my, my fire alarms would go off, you know? Yeah, yeah, you burn a stick of wood, put all the mix all the ashes with the water. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I just invented some ink. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the people who I would be sending my documents to would, would really appreciate that. <laughs> yes, it's got the lovely smell of... And also the apartment complex for, like, responding to the sprinklers going <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have to do it under like a under a dome, under like a clear dome. Be right back. I'm buying myself an enormous 3D printer of clear domes. <laughs> we got a fume hood installed. In yeah, fume hood. Yeah, I don't have so much of like an office or a lab space as I do like um like a storage unit and um, a stove with a hood. So. <laughs> Everything I do yeah. has to be in that context. <laughs> but that's my comprehensive things of uh, a list of things that have not gone wrong yet. So I, I hope yeah. you enjoy that list. That, I guess that covers it. Yeah. I, I can't really think of anything else to add. I I, mean, you also didn't, when making blueberry crumble, you did not pull out the bag of frozen okra and put that in the blueberry crumble either. Yeah, nobody wants, nobody wants baked that's, slimy okra. <laughs> but it's an additional thing on your list. <laughs> You didn't pull out the hot glue gun. <laughs> I, I didn't bake my uh, sporulated haploid offspring <laughs> in a pie. I, I, have, I have not produced a Gabita fight. <laughs> if the song is to be believed, you could bake a bunch of those into a pie crust, and then they'll start singing when you cut the pie open. 
a gametophyte. Um, it's, not, it's not the stage of the plant life cycle in which the plants make a lot of noise. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> the, I have not embarrassed myself in German this year. It actually comes from a story where um, I feel like it was the German woman who ended up embarrassing herself, but she didn't seem embarrassed, so I let it go. I was, I was wearing like a, a headlamp manufactured by Petzl, I was in the field with a German woman and I'm like, oh, isn't this funny? This is called Petzl. And she was like, why is that funny? <laughs> I said, don't Germans have a word for like a small boy's penis? And she said, well, yes, of course. And I said, well, what is it? And she said, Peepiman. <laughs> I, I should be forgiven for thinking it was Petzl, but it's Peepiman. <laughs> Oh, I'm laughing because I'm... Hello, Winston, you're on the air. Uh, I'm laughing because I'm talking to my friends on over the internet. Hi, Winston. Hey, Winston. You are. <laughs> you uh, that's the movie I was watching before the show. The friends, you can't... There aren't pictures of them, unfortunately. But you can't hear them because I'm not talking. No, right, because they're waiting to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Hi, Winston. As if we said the magic summoning word of the Ooh. little boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, buddy, I need to finish this podcast. You go, on, you, you go read some books. Okay. <laughs> He's so cute. He's so cute. Oh, good. He's so cute. Wow. Uh, and on that note. Well, that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Thanks for having us on, Jim. Yeah, anytime. You're, you're both welcome. Thank you for having me on. It's I've been an, I would say I've been an armchair fan of Topic Lords. Um, I feel like that's kind of redundant when you're talking about listening to something. You could listen to it in an armchair <laughs> or anywhere else, but um, I've, enjoyed li I've enjoyed eavesdropping on the episodes that Erica has listened to, and I'm really delighted to have the chance to be a guest on the podcast. So thank you for Not just a guest, a lord. Oh, dear. That's right, yeah. <laughs> You can you can lord it over people now. Perhaps I will. And also now you can listen to the episodes yourself, and then other people can eavesdrop on you. Oh yeah, right. Just keep the this is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!